Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been looking at Shakespeare's history play, Henry IV, Part Two, which is the third play in a tetralogy. Before it came Richard II and Henry IV, Part One, and after it, we will take a look eventually at the final play, Henry V. Henry IV, Part Two, in some ways, is deliberately designed to mirror, in a symmetrical way, Henry IV, Part One, and yet with significant differences from it. It is a darker play, a rather stranger play in some ways, and we have reached the center of it. We were looking at Act Three. And the darkness there seems to intensify to its deepest point, even though it is fairly clear, even to the audience, I think, that this is the dark before a new dawn, that eventually the audience would have known, because the plot is really the plot of history, that Hal, Prince Hal, would go on to become Henry V, and would revive the fortunes of England from top to bottom. But here that has not yet happened, and in fact, from top to bottom, things seem to be rather dark. We looked last time at the opening of Act Three, Act Three, Scene One, in which King Henry IV is in a nightgown unlike Northumberland, whom we'd seen in a previous act pretending to be sick, being crafty sick, as the opening chorus calls him, and then throwing his crutch away when it was convenient for him to stop pretending. Henry IV here in Act Three really is sick. He is, in fact, close to the end of his life, and he cannot sleep, nevertheless, because he is so anxious about the future. He is whatever his usurper's sin in having assumed the crown. He genuinely cares about the fate of England, and he is genuinely uneasy, in fact, bequeathing to posterity one of Shakespeare's famous lines as he soliloquizes and says, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And he is in a very dark frame of mind about the future, and it extends to such an intensity that we really feel that he is being what nowadays would be called clinically depressed. He says at one point, if the happiest youth would see what would happen in his future, he would simply lie down and die. It is a rational speech because there are very good reasons for worrying about the fate of England. And yet, that type of near despair is clearly something rather excessive and neurotic. And the contrast is with the vitality of his son, Hal. But Hal is, in fact, his chief worry because he still feels, despite these seeming 
making up between father and son at the end of Henry IV, part one. Clearly, Henry IV has no idea that his son is ever going to turn out to be a good king. All evidence points otherwise. And he is worried not so much about his son as for the fate of a land when his son will become the king and all his bad habits will no longer be restrained. And after all, he took over from Richard II, who was exactly that kind of case. What he fears and says at one point is a replay that his son will be a replay of Richard II. The audience knows better, of course, but it's understandable and not just neurotic that Henry should fear this. That is the first scene, and with the usual mirroring of social classes, the second scene of Act Three is another of the low-life scenes, a rather remarkable one, and most of the lower-class scenes in this play are remarkable in how unremittingly naturalistic and ironic they are. There's a good deal of satire at comic characters who have their foibles and who are on the wrong side of the law, but there's also a good deal of rather harsh realism about where all this is going to end up. Here, in scene two, we have a get-together between two of the lower-class justices. The two justices, shallow and silent, are lower-class justices and are, in the usual symmetries of the play, contrasted with the Lord Chief Justice, whose consequence we will follow later. Here we have the lower class justices who, despite their office, are part of the general disintegration and corruption of lower class English life that has been going on presumably as a consequence of Richard II's bad rule and what has gone down the line from that. And there is a lot of nostalgia on the part of characters like Shallow and Silence for the good old days, the good old days when we were young. And that's another running theme in the play, and really through the whole tetralogy with its theme of fathers giving way to sons and the future. And the play mirrors the satire in Henry IV, part one, on occasion, perhaps a bit too closely. There is some attempt to recreate some of the comedy of the earlier play in a way that seems a little bit repetitive, depending on the audience's taste. Here, Shallow has brought potential conscripts for Falstaff. This replays Falstaff being put in charge of conscripting, training, and leading troops in Henry IV, Part I, and Falstaff corruptly 
pocketing the money that he has paid in the previous play by the people who would have made worthy soldiers and going off and conscripting some total failures, including people who are utterly unfit to be soldiers. And here we get a replay of that, and in fact, there's, it's done in more detail. They go through one candidate after the other and keep throwing out people who might have been good soldiers and taking these people who are complete misfits. And the whole scene ends in a nostalgic, at least on the part of Shallow, a nostalgic reminiscence of the good old days after they get done being corrupt about the draft. They start partying and talking about the good old days and Shallow just can't keep off of the subject. And he goes and mentions people that they used to know and the other Justice Silence says, that's 55 years ago. So these people, by the standards of the time, are quite old. These are old men, older presumably than Falstaff himself, who is said to be about 60 at one point. But if they were remembering things from 55 years ago, they must be old even by the standards of our time. And commenting on these reminiscences, Falstaff replies, we have heard the chimes at midnight, Master Shallow, meaning they've been up at all hours in their youth doing all sorts of wild and crazy youthful things. The chimes at midnight when respectable people are abed. That phrase, the chimes of midnight, gave Orson Welles the title for his film version of Falstaff, which takes the Falstaff parts out of the tetralogy and puts them all together into a single film with Wells himself, of course, playing Falstaff, The Chimes at Midnight. And it's a brilliant choice of title on Wells's part because what surrounds Falstaff is this nostalgia for the good old days when we were young and these hijinks could be dismissed as youthful high spirits. Now, however, on the part of these aging and, in fact, aged men, it comes off as pathetic, as sad, and as not a good indication of the state of society. Nonetheless, this is how it is until something else is going to change it, and that something will have to be a change, a change in the royal line. And that takes us to Act Four, in which Henry IV will in fact die. We have been looking in previous weeks at the progress on the rebel front. We still have a rebellion on our hands. It was not squashed at the end of Henry IV, Part One even by the Battle of Shrewsbury, which is, was the climax of that play, the big battle 
and the defeat of the rebels, but not the entire defeat. There were still rebels who escaped. Largely, one notes with dry irony, the ones we see here who are still at large and who still at least talk of rebellion are the ones who actually bowed out like cowards from the Battle of Shrewsbury, including Glendower, that we learn here has died but off stage, and Northumberland, who betrays the cause yet again, as we have seen. He fails to show up for the Battle of Shrewsbury and dooms his own son, who dies basically of a lack of reinforcements, goes to battle anyway and ends up getting killed. Hotspur, the most valiant character on either side, perhaps. And here we have the remnants, including the Archbishop of York, a man that is one of the most pathetic figures of them all, in fact, in the part of the rebels. We recall, if we know the whole tetralogy, we recall that he had originally stood for the just cause, as he saw it, of the rightful king. He was originally a defender of the right of Richard II to the throne, despite Richard's terrible behavior, including the behavior of depriving Bolingbroke, later Henry IV, of his rightful estates when his father died, but nevertheless the true king. His change of allegiance was the change of fortunes that, in fact, led to the deposition of Richard II. And then, then, however, he's turned once again when the true cause is uprooted, then loyalty veers with the wind, and even a character who probably, at least interpretively, wants to do good, wants to stand for the just cause like the Archbishop, there's no way to do that in the hurricane of rebellion. So he is here against Henry IV on the grounds that Henry did not do when I supported you. You did not do what you claimed. You claimed you were only there for your rightful estates denied you by Richard. Instead, you went on to seize the crown. Therefore, I go back to my original allegiance and I'm against you. And there are other rebels as well at the beginning of Act Four who are debating what to do at this point. It is unclear to both sides who holds the advantage in terms of number of men. And while the rebels are in parley with themselves, up comes from Henry IV's side a representative of the King Westmoreland. Westmoreland speaks to them and makes them an offer that purports to come from the king. He tells them in a parley that although they have no real cause to rebel, nonetheless, the king will give audience to them and listen to their grievances. And 
they give him a document of their grievances, and when he leaves, they are split on whether they can trust the king or not. The archbishop, among other people, does trust the king's word. The next scene, Act 4, Scene 2, is a meeting with Prince John, who Westmoreland was only an emissary, but Prince John, being, of course, a prince, being, in other words, one of Hal's brothers. Hal has several brothers who show up, mostly as just part of a group, but the one who stands out is John, who appears here and who tells the rebels that he has read the document of complaints and all of these will be redressed. The rebels foolishly believe that. And in fact, they basically drink to it together, both sides. And the rebels, with complete foolishness, discharge their armies. And once it is reported to Prince John that that has happened, he has them arrested on the charge of high treason. That's the end of the rebellion. It is a complete anticlimax, even though it is historical, but we expect a replay. We expect something like the structure of Henry IV Part One, where it leads up to the big battle scene, and the big battle is the great climax of the play, even though we know that there will be a sequel and the villains will come back in a rather Hollywood sort of dramatic fashion. And that is completely undermined and reversed here. And it's clear, although it's historical, it's clear that Shakespeare has designed it to be a symmetry that is in fact not a symmetry. It is a reversal. And that's the end of the rebellion. It is wiped out without a single battle, without any further fight. It has, however, been wiped out by complete treachery. If you have any belief in warriors and politicians keeping to their word, they trusted the word of John and with complete Machiavellian coldness, John deceived them. We can say that they were very foolish to have trusted this. Traitors, for one thing, are never trusted, even if there had been an attempt to live up to this agreement, it would not have worked out because people who have once rebelled and are regarded as traitors it never works out that everything is patched up and life can go on. But they should never have trusted it anyway. They should never have trusted it in terms of politicians keeping their word when it would be very much in their interest not to. Nonetheless, we're a bit shocked. This cold betrayal, and John has no compunction, about this. And Shakespeare is setting it up implicitly to make a contrast between the two brothers. We are constantly on the verge of thinking 
that Prince Hal is a rather cool customer, that he is rather coldly calculating. This goes back to the first Henry play, where he clearly indicates that all of this hanging out with lowlife and with Falstaff is just an act, and he's really calculating and using this as what will become a form of political theater, making himself into the affectionately reformed rapscallion and therefore increase his popularity with the general public, which in fact works. But that's a very calculated thing to do, and really, we really wonder what we think of this private chess player. Well, whatever we do think of him, John is much more Machiavellian than Hal ever was. Hal may be a cool customer, but John is pure ice. And he is a cold political game player, an advocate of real politic, as we would say in the 20th and 21st centuries. But that's the end of the rebellion. It's over. We pass to a brief scene, Act 4, Scene 3, and we're back to deliberate, or apparently deliberate, symmetry with the first Henry play. Falstaff meets a knight who is here simply to make the symmetry, somebody named Sir John Colville, and rather bluffs him into surrendering. And so therefore we have an evocation of the earlier play in which Falstaff pretends to accomplish something. In that case, he pretends to have been the one that killed Hotspur, where really he only found the dead body and staked a claim on it. Here, Colville voluntarily surrenders, and Falstaff takes credit for, oh, look, I've captured one member of the warrior aristocracy on the rebel side. He also notes briefly about Prince John something that indicates that he's quite aware of what we were just saying, that about John, no man nor a man can make him laugh. And the reason for that is that John drinks no wine. Hal has also inherited the family cold-bloodedness, but Falstaff says it's okay with him because he warms it up with wine and then is a likable guy and hangs out with us. Nonetheless, the contrast with the earlier play. Act four, scene four, takes place in Westminster in a place called the Jerusalem Chamber. And there will be a clever plot twist based on the name of that chamber. We are back to King Henry IV, who is surrounded by his other sons. Two are missing. John has been out dealing with rebels. And then there's Hal. You guys are all here, Prince uh, King Henry says. Where is your brother? Well, he's in London with Poins. In other words, he's hanging out with the gang again. And this provokes from 
Henry the Fourth, a totally despairing speech. It makes his soliloquy look as if it was just preparation for this. It's a whole outburst entirely about fear for England once his ungoverned son becomes the king. When I am dead, nothing will curb Hal's appetites. It's, he's just waiting for me to die so he can party hardy without any restraint whatsoever. The character Warwick tries to push against this. He says the prince but studies his companions like a strange tongue wherein to gain the language, which of course is exactly what Hal himself said in the earlier Henry play, which makes us think, well, Warwick is a rather shrewd and perceptive man, though of course it's Shakespeare putting the words in his mouth, and that's a quick aside to the members of the audience who need to be reminded that that's the case, that's the plot that Shakespeare has in mind, whatever Howe has in mind. Coming in upon this scene of family difficulty is the good news of a bloodless victory. How wonderful, what a miracle. Upon which Henry IV swoons, he faints. And the good news ironically proves the thing that kills him that plunges him, not immediately, but plunges him into a medical crisis from which he will not recover. He will recover momentarily and temporarily, but he will not recover in the sense that very soon hereafter he will expire. Act four, scene five, Hal arrives and in fact, the king has been taken to that Jerusalem chamber in a state of collapse. And when Hal arrives, the king does seem dead. Hal has a moment with him alone. No one else is in the chamber. And the king seems to be not breathing. He seems not asleep, but in fact, either dead or almost dead. And this is a crucial moment because in this scene, Hal picks up the crown, which is resting by the king, and puts the crown on his own head. He says while doing so, and he will repeat later that he thinks at the moment that he does that, that the king is dead, that his father has died, and that now this crown belongs to him. But still we have to ask, why put it on your head? Even if you do think that, why put it on your head you have to be crowned officially by someone else. You've put the crown on your own head. 
Why do that? And it was certainly a bad move because all of a sudden the king wakes and starts shouting, where is my crown? What? Hal runs away and the king says to his sons who entered the room, you are helping to kill me. Even before I'm dead, you are fighting over the crown because the crown is gone. And it's a moment of complete chaos. Well, they go and fetch Hal, who comes in to his father in an excruciating scene. Hal says to his father, I never thought to hear you speak again. And the king bitterly, bitterly replies, thy wish was father, Harry, to that thought. That's because that's what you wished. And he goes on with enormous energy. In this tetralogy, people seem to be seized with a final energy right before they expire because this echoes what happens in the play Richard II with John of Gaunt who bursts into a huge tirade and there's probably an intention that we remember that scene here because Henry IV here sounds a lot like John of Gaunt redressing Richard in that play here shouting at his son, I know, I know what you're going to do in a very short time. I'm not dead now, but I'm going to be dead very soon and you're waiting for it. It's a tirade that goes on and on. I know what you will do. You will pluck down my officers. You will break my decrees for now is now a time has come to mock at form. Harry V is crowned. Up vanity, down royal state. All you sage counselors hence. And to the English court assemble now from every region apes of idleness. And he goes on and on. Have you a ruffian that will swear, drink, dance, revel the night, rob, murder, and commit the oldest sins, the newest kind of ways? Be happy. He will trouble you no more. England shall double gild his trouble guilt. England shall give him office, honor, might. For the fifth Harry from curved license plucks the muzzle of restraint and the wild dog shall flesh his tooth on every innocent. Oh, my poor kingdom, sick with civil blows. That must be quite a speech if you are Prince Hale listening to it and knowing that you are the cause of it. And moreover, knowing that it isn't just a cranky old man, your father. Your father has reason to think that, the way you have been acting out in the world and the fact that you took that crown just a very short time ago. And as a matter of fact, the stage direction says it is right after that tirade, the prince 
kneeling and returning the crown. It is at that moment that he returns the crown, which really doesn't look good from a point of view that is detached and wondering, what is it with hell? If this speech is not just, and it's not just in the sense that it's not accurate, that is not at all, what will happen when Henry V really is crowned? But nonetheless, what is it with this complex and mysterious son of Henry IV? He claims to his father, kneeling, there is your crown. God witness with me when I here came in and found no course of breath within your majesty, how cold it struck my heart. Well, okay, you think that your father died and this crown does belong to you. But why did you put it on? And how has what may, it is interpreted, but what may not sound like a very good answer to that question. He says, I put it on my head to try with it as with an enemy that had before my face murdered, murdered my father. Well, what does that mean? And swears that he will never let this kind of power symbolized by the crown go to his head. But nonetheless, it was a strange thing to do. What we are left thinking is, okay, Henry IV was once Harry Bolingbroke, and he seized that crown. He says, blatantly at one point in the play, Richard II, I will take the crown. And he is so touchy here about a son who may seize that crown, perhaps because consciously or half-consciously, in his mind he knows that he is in some ways a usurper. He does not have a total legal right to that crown himself, and therefore figures that it would be only something that fulfills a pattern if his own son takes the crown from him. We're never given a window into his own mind that suggests any of these things. Nonetheless, on the other side of Freud and knowledge of the human unconscious, we speculate what's going on here. And how claiming that he had no thought to usurp the crown may on a conscious level be quite honest and yet we can be honest on one level and dishonest on another. If that's the case, Hal, why did you put it on your head? It's a very strange thing to do and you don't really seem to have a very good answer for it. At any rate, the scene ends, and it is the last scene in which Hal and his father will have together. 
It ends with advice on the part of Henry IV. Once you do become king, as if he were assuming that there may be some point, there may be some hope that his son would take the kingship responsibly and seriously. If that is so, then, first of all, if you behave well, it should go better for you than it did for me because you will have some semblance of legitimacy that I admit that I did not have. And therefore, you will be less likely to provoke a cause of rebellion. Nonetheless, what I suggest to you is once you become king, go and do what never got done clear back in Richard II, a crusade to the to foreign country. There it was supposed to be to the Holy Land. Here he claims and advises his son, I therefore, my Harry, be at thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. An often quoted passage in the play because that's exactly what will be the plot of Henry V. The crusade to the Holy Land that at the beginning of Henry IV, part one, Henry says he will never be able to fulfill the promise he had made because there's too much rebellion at home to go off to the Holy Land. But now that the rebellion is put down, Harry, go busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. They won't have a mind to rebel at home if you get them busy all focused on a foreign war. And that's exactly the plot of Henry V. And that takes us to the final act of Henry IV, part two. And indeed, in that act, Prince Hal becomes Henry V, and Falstaff is joyous because he expects all sorts of rewards. He expects exactly the sort of thing that Henry IV has been going on in a tirade about. Well, we will see how that self, how that expectation plays itself out next week. And we will also go on introducing and beginning our discussion of the final play in the Tetralogy, Henry V.